Hi guys, welcome to the Theotech Podcast. I'm Chris Lim, your host, and today our guest is Calvin Freitas, a friend of mine and the creator of Scripture Memory app, Verses for Life. If you've ever felt stuck in your work, or like you haven't learned anything new in a while, hear Calvin's story as he shares how working on this labor of love helped him to grow as a developer. We're also going to talk about Bible licensing hurdles, the challenges of entrepreneurship, and keeping our goals in the new year, and more. So with that, let's dive in. Why don't we open up with uh, talking about your app uh, sure. that you've been doing as kind of a side thing and what inspired you, what it does, and what you hope to accomplish with it. Yeah, definitely. So I have built an app. It is available um, both on Apple devices and Android devices. It is called Verses for Life. It is a Bible memorization app. Right now, it's primarily focused on something called the Topical Memory System, which is a set of five packs of verses of 12 verses each that covers a lot of uh, you know kind of topical subjects uh, and some major bible verses that that go with those um, so that that's something that was created by the navigators many decades ago but i i find that it's helpful to have it in a digital form that's what my app is at, at kind of a high level mm-hmm. so basically if people want to do the topical memory system but don't want to use it the paper-based way your free app is a great way that they can get started. Exactly, yes. Okay. And the Navigators uh, are a ministry that teach people how to memorize scripture and other things like that. And Yeah, they do a lot of evangelism especially. So they're a Christian organization. Um, they do a lot of work on college campuses, but internationally as well. It's a group that I was involved with in, in college. So it's very similar to something like Crew and InterVarsity and, and those types of things. Mm-hmm. So, like, what inspired you to use your technical skills to build this app? Because as I understand it, you you invested your own time, your money. Like, this is really a, a labor of love for you. Yeah. So, programming is something that I've enjoyed. Obviously, I do it for my my work and my day job as well. But uh, you know, I like to tinker. I like to build things with my technical skills. So. I think I initially started playing with this this specific idea and this concept. I built a website version of it probably close to 10 years ago. It was the first time I built some version of this. And um, the app I've had going for about three or four years, so kind of transitioned from just doing the website-only version to, to an app as a way to, um, to improve some of my, my programming skills. So one of the main languages I use is a language called JavaScript, and I found some ways that you can use JavaScript to build mobile applications in a framework called React Native. Basically, I use it as an opportunity to you know, learn some new skills, but also build something that I thought would be useful and interesting and hopefully valuable for people as well who, who wanted to memorize these verses. I, that's a really good um, motivation just to kind of level up your skill but build something useful at the same time. Because I do remember when I was still working for Amazon and, and uh, like I realized I was getting kind of pigeonholed because I was working on just the same stuff. I was an expert at it, got paid well for it, but I wasn't growing. And it wasn't until I left and I had to like do everything without Amazon's like builder tools and everything. I was like, I don't know anything. I don't know how to do any of this stuff. And I had to like start from scratch and like master all these things. So. Yeah, and with recently moving on from Amazon as well, I'm experiencing some of the same things, and I'm actually really grateful for the the skills and the experience that I got in building this app because 
you know, both, you know, JavaScript, TypeScript, React, some of these other skills that I built on my own time are mm -hmm. things that I'm able to use to do work now, mm -hmm. which is, uh, you know, just, just on the basis of the types of projects that I, that I'd been working on recently are not things that I would have learned. So, yeah. And, and even with that, there's, there's a ton of things like I spent most of the 2010s working at Amazon. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the world has changed a lot. Technology's changed a lot. Um, you know, there's AWS, there's Google Cloud, there's Azure, mm -hmm. there's Kubernetes. There's, there's, there's a lot of just technical things happening out there in the industry that, you know, if you, if you don't play with stuff, if you, don't, yeah. if you don't have curiosity about things, you know, you can't keep up with everything. You've still got to figure out your priorities. But yeah, building this app, it was helpful for me just because there were some very practical skills and tools that I was able to learn that, that have helped me. You know, as I'm kind of transitioning to something yeah. new. Have you found it to be a pleasant experience working with React Native? I've I've enjoyed React Native. Um, yeah, I don't think it's perfect for all use cases, but for for building a small app, especially if you've got you know if it's just you or a small developer team, mm -hmm. I think React Native is is pretty useful. I, I use something that that kind of builds on top of React Native. Uh, it's a framework called Expo. Mm -hmm. um, it provides some additional APIs, which stands for ap Application Programming Interface. And basically, it's some extra tools that makes it even easier to build an app, which has been great because they manage a bunch of the process of building it and making it ready for, for Android or for iOS. Yeah. Which, if you've got limited time, like one of the big challenges, you know, especially for for side hustle slash just things you're doing for fun, is like how do you how do you scale in a sense your time to do as much as possible? Mm -hmm. And um, I think knowing your tools, like both the ones you've already decided to use, and finding the right tools to help deliver whatever product or feature it is that you're trying to make available to people, that's a really important thing to do. Yeah, and also. Um Sometimes we have, I've been, you know, asked and consulted with uh, by nonprofits, ministries, and things like that. And they want it, because people know apps, everybody's like, oh, I want an app, I want an app. And, and people don't always realize how expensive it is not only to build the app, and also to maintain the app after that. Yeah. Um, and one thing I've been counseling people to do is to consider progressive web apps as an alternative, because you don't have to go through the app store, and it could still work offline. And for certain experiences, it seems like it's just far better to get the kind of reach that people are really looking for than having to invest in native apps where they might have to put a lot of time into an effort into maintaining it and updating their listings in the app stores and everything else like that. Yeah, yeah. Progressive web apps, I think, are a very interesting concept. I think, you know, the big things to think through is make sure you're doing it for the right reasons, weigh the pros and cons. I think there's certain types of, of businesses or application use cases where it makes a lot of sense, but you know, if you're doing e-commerce or something where you need up-to-date information like prices or, you know, th there's use cases where progressive web apps don't deliver value the way you think they would. Mm -hmm. um, which, you know, e even there, there's, there, there's other factors to consider, but- um, They are hard to monetize. Yeah. Uh, then, uh, yeah. Well, yeah. if you're if you're offline, right? Like the offline use case. That's that's part of the theoretical appeal for progressive web apps. There are businesses where offline won't do you any good. For for example, if you're trying to sell a product or a service, it doesn't matter if it's an app where you're making some resources available to your customer, and they, they won't have access to a document or a file or some mm -hmm. resource offline. Then that would be a great feature to have. Do you think that you would do Versus for Life as a PWA? 
I I've thought about it. It's uh, I just haven't invested in rebuilding it to to support that yet. Um, I've got a lot of the right pieces in place on the website. It's it's mostly just a matter of investing more time to to fully make that available as a progressive web app. Interesting. It could it could probably it could, work it really could probably well. get there with a little bit of with a little bit of work. So um, can can you share with us like versus for life open source? Um, it it's not currently. I think the main reason for that is just it was with the Bible translations like they are not publicly sourced. So I've got versions of some of those files that I'm using in my app mm-hmm. that I can't put out there on uh, you know a Git hosting site because the the license is only for you personally. Is that why? Like, or you're on the only I, I'm yes. Okay. Essentially. Okay. Yeah. So I um so again I would like to open up more of it, but uh, yeah I've, I've got a couple of of things that are open source, but I, I need to do some work and clean up the code and basically make it worth opening up to other <laughs> to people. Worth opening yeah. Up. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, it's not that it's bad. It's just like, it's my whole app all in one place. It's not, you know, it's not composed of many different parts that would necessarily be useful to open source at, at this point. I see. Yeah. With, uh, with our prayer app ceaseless, we open sourced it and it was useful not because anybody really depends on it on the code base itself, but really just for the hackathons that we would do by open sourcing yeah. it, everybody could just like bandwagon and work on it for 48 hours and, you know, skill, to the skill building and, you know, that that's, that was a real benefit for us. With the Bible licensing stuff, let's talk a little bit about that because I don't, I don't think most people realize that there's so much latent potential, I feel like, for creating creative uses of scripture, but it's all really prevented by a powerful monopoly on Bible copyrights that kind of keep developers from being able to do cool things with it. Can you talk about your experience dealing with that? Definitely. I think the yeah, licensing for digital versions of the Bible is one of the 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 biggest challenges. And I think, you know, for me as as a developer, as somebody building a you know, a product and an app, like if you're doing something scripture oriented, you know, making those different versions of the Bible available is really difficult. Um, you know, one thing that you'll note actually, even if you pay attention in uh, in Christian content, there are, you know, there are pastors who will use the KJV hmm. and, um, you know, give their quotes in the KJV on their blog or on whatever source. And sometimes that's because that's like the only English translation that they can use, you know, beyond a certain number of quotes of Bible verses without getting permission from the publisher hmm. of a translation. So, you know, that's something I've noticed in, in some, even in some Christian podcasts, they'll only use the, the KJV, like if they're quoting a Bible verse sometimes. And so that's not for a theological belief. It's actually because KJV is the only public domain widely used English translation that they can use without having to get permission. There are certainly going to be people that do it because they have a preference for the KJV, but okay. yeah, the licensing restrictions make it so you couldn't necessarily use another translation. And I think there there's, you know, there's public domain considerations from a copyright perspective and and a lot of the translations will have, you know, if you look at the first few pages of your Bible, often they'll tell you like, "Hey, you can do this without asking for permission, anything beyond a certain number of verses or a certain percentage of a, a chapter or a book, mm-hmm. then you need to ask us for permissions. But that, that's with a physical Bible. Like yep. if, if you look online at the publisher's websites, there's, there's all sorts of difficult hoops you have to step through, which like if you're not a registered business, some of them won't talk to you. Some of them won't give you any permissions. You can ask them and they'll say, no, you got to be registered as a business to or 
or some sort of entity. I mean, it yeah. could be a nonprofit or, or whatever, a church. You have to be incorporated, basically. You have to be incorporated in yeah. some way. Yeah. And uh, yeah, we could talk. We, I think we can we can name names here. So like uh, <laughs> the NIV, I think I heard you say was like the, one of those that only yeah, wants to the, talk to businesses. Yeah, the NIV. Um, you know, another one would be the the New King James Version. And a lot of these Bible translations are currently owned by some of the biblicalist book publishing houses. Uh-huh. You know, HarperCollins yeah. owns more than one Bible translation, you know, as a result English of buying out like Zondervan or, you know, Thomas Nelson or who, mm-hmm. whoever it was originally that, uh, you know, that had the rights. Because I know that I've used the digital Bible platform before from Faith Comes by Hearing. We use that for Ceaseless. And it was great because they had so many languages, but they only had really one English translation or two, KJV and ESV, because those are the kind of right. the two organizations that are the most open-handed, I guess, with their yeah. E- ESV is is nice. I mean, they're probably the the friendliest in terms of licensing of of the publishing uh, companies, which which is great. Um, they have their own API, which is really wonderful. Mm-hmm. I think the drawback is that that API is just for their translation. Yes. Now, I, I do believe the ESV is also available through through some others. Uh, one one website that's worth checking out, especially if you're a developer interested in these types of projects, is um, something called api.bible. Um, so there's, and that's not .bible.com, it's just api.bible. If you type that in your browser, you know, that's one of those uh, newer top-level domains. And it's a pretty cool website, and they provide access to a number of different translations for free, similar to something like the Digital Bible Platform. Um, now, in English, you know, same type of thing as what you're talking about. By default, it's mainly the KJV and a few other variants of the KJV mm-hmm. that are available. They actually do have a way to get permission to access more translations uh, you know, through their website, either by asking them, and they'll provide access to some additional that uh, they themselves, the American Bible Society, have rights for. And the, I, mean, I haven't fully gone through this process, but there is some way that if you get permission from some of the other publishers, they can make it available through that same API. Um, was that, was but that, it's getting permission. That's the is hard still part. the hard part. Yeah, because you have to go to every rights owner separately and get their buy-in to say, yeah, you can use it for your app. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was the digital Bible library where you can like have a library card check out or something like that and get permission. Yeah. And I actually, um, API.Bible, if you have a digital Bible library, library ID, yeah. uh, if you have that already, you can use that through their platform, mm-hmm. which is good, but I don't, I don't have that. Yeah. And you were saying that you looked at some of your com- competing Bible scripture memory apps and they have a way and they just kind of charge the end user some amount of money to unlock a translation or something. Yeah, and one of the challenges you'll notice, though, is that some of some of those same publishers that we're talking about won't let you. There's no way to get verses a la carte or to get rights for like a certain number of verses. They pretty much force the app developers to sell the entire Bible, Bible. to somebody. Oh, okay. So, yeah, in, in some of the other scripture memory apps I've looked at, you can pay eight or ten dollars to unlock. You know, memorizing any verse in you know the ESV or or you know whichever of these, um, but then you're you're paying for the whole Bible even if you just want to memorize like ten verses, know, you've right? got to pay ten bucks. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Like that that doesn't make sense. Well, it's and, only a dollar a verse, I guess, and God's word is priceless. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah and if, if you're a good Christian, you'll memorize a lot more than ten verses. But uh, so you can amortize those costs with more memory. That's right. Um, but but yeah, it, it's really I would say it's it's user hostile in some ways, and mm-hmm. it's. 
you know, I, I would argue that, that the way these things are priced is hostile to the Christian kingdom. It's, I think it's good for companies to be able to make profit on something, especially if they spend a bunch of time and money doing a really accurate, great quality translation of the Bible. They should be able to make money. Um, but having restrictions where you will only sell the full Bible and not allow some sort of a la carte access, yeah. I don't think that's a good thing. It's, honestly, it kind of just feels outmoded because when I heard you described it, it sounded like um, the publisher expects you as a developer to maybe spend like 3000 bucks or something to like kind of buy inventory of digital Bibles that you can then sell to your end users. And it's a very kind of old like physical yeah. Bible thing translated to the digital world. Whereas nowadays with AWS or just take iTunes, where they broke up, the, you used to have to buy an album, but now they let you buy single tracks, and it was only a dollar. And all of a sudden, pirating really went down because there was a convenient, affordable way to get what, what people actually wanted. And I feel like with this Bible API thing, like, why is it that we don't have like an AWS where you can get yeah. any translation and just pay for usage? So if you get 100,000 hits for the verses, then you pay for that, and otherwise you don't. And, you know, it becomes a very just and also effective, convenient way that can um, compensate people, but also unleash innovation. It just doesn't exist yet. And I was hoping that ABS or somebody would have the leverage, yeah. like version could have the leverage. Like, guys, let's just like, you know, make one usage-based API. All the devs can just register and you'll get, you'll get paid for the usage and then they get access to what their, what their customers actually need. Yeah, I, I think that would be fantastic from a developer perspective. Um, you know, if you look at things from the, the customer perspective, I think there's some other interesting possibilities there as well. Like, like a Spotify for Bibles, right? Hmm. Like why if I'm using a scripture memory app and another scripture memory app, if for some reason I wanted to, and maybe a prayer app where I want to be able to have, mm -hmm. you know, if, if in Ceaseless you wanted to be able to use any verses you wanted to, yep. um, you know, and like as a consumer, you could have like five or seven or however many different Bible apps. Like, I don't know, maybe I'm not normal, but I've got probably around seven or eight you know, apps that have some type of Bible content in it. Uh, you know, Olive Tree, like the Uversion Bible app. Um, American Bible Society has one. I think it's just Bible.is. Uh, and, you know, and a few other of these scripture memory apps, like why should I pay 10 bucks for different translations or $8, whatever the number is, in all these different apps to unlock Bible content mm. for that app. So it'd be like you have to pay um, for the same Bible over and over again for each new platform yeah. that you want to use it on. And I think some of them like some of them like U version, they you know, they've worked things out. So there are translations like the ESV that anybody can get for free, mm -hmm. KJV. But U version was able to do that because of their massive user base and growth. They had the leverage um, to be able to negotiate a good contract, I think. Sure, and sure. Just, and if you're a known yeah. entity, that makes the negotiations easier too. That's it's true. like, yeah. Actually, I have a friend. Uh, I think I think I could share this story because it's not super secret. It's just kind of interesting. Uh, there's a group called Basil Tech, which is kind of tech uh, people in the tech industry in the Bay Area and in Seattle. We have a group too now. It's like a small group of coders. And instead of just doing Bible study, are actually building stuff. Hmm. And uh, so there was a read scripture app that they built, uh, and it was connected to Francis Chan and stuff. But because Francis Chan is friends of John Piper. When they built it, they needed the rights to the ESV, and so Francis asked John Piper, who then just forwarded an email uh, to the ESV Crossway and said, "Like, guys, give him the Bible." It's like, okay, done. But you know, that's like the old boys network where they have this like special access direct into Crossway, which is a very good organization. Like, they want to give the Bible. Yeah. App. But that 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 made it so easy for them to have the right and license to go ahead and publish the Read Scripture app, and uh, it would just be fantastic if that kind of access could be available to just far more developers, right? And to not have so many gatekeepers that are blocking it, but to have platforms. 
um, that unleash innovation and creativity that it's not possible today. I feel like it's like unnecessarily held up. Yeah, it's harder than I would like it to be. Yeah. So this is the gripes of two developers who are trying to work with Bible content. And actually for Spiffio, our translation software, we have all these customers asking us like, can we just like get the good Bible translations that we want? And then, you know, and then since we do translation, like we would love to not use uh, machine translation mm. of the Bible. We'd love to just say, okay, we have a good Chinese version. We have a good English version that's done by human translators that are, you know, trusted and stuff. Let's use those translations instead. But when you go multilingual, when you go beyond English, the problems get even harder because now you got to deal with way more Bible rights organizations to get access to those things and have it all aligned across the languages. And the compensation model is not convenient. It's not like a platform I can just like pay once and just pay per use. Yeah. So it gets really like icky basically. And I want to do this for our customers, but it's like, it's really hard. Yeah. And I mean, there are ways to prioritize it too, to, to cover like get one translation for the top 80% of languages or, or whatever, you know, based on global usage, but that still leaves 20% out or, you know, whatever the number is. Yeah. And then the other thing is that because we're in like the non the kind of nonprofit world, I don't mind paying. I don't mind charging customers for this. But mo many of the licenses of the API say that you can use it for non-commercial use. And the moment it becomes commercial, all the benefits of the platform go away because now I have to negotiate with every single publisher separately again. Right. And it was like, oh, like you have a benefit, but then now it's gone because yeah, because I have a product that that customers pay for because it does more than just the Bible anyway. I'm not selling the Bible, but I oh, can't, exactly. I can't leverage this non-commercial use thing simply because my product does more. Right. And it's like really frustrating. That's one of the big reasons I haven't tried to put any bonus features in Versus for Life because if I if I did charge for some of that stuff, yeah. Like that, yeah, that makes it even harder to have those conversations with the different rights holders. Oh, yeah. So let's talk about monetization. Let's talk about entrepreneurship and, you know, that concept of like these things that deliver value because you have people using Versus for Life. Yes. And you're making, it's like a volunteer kind of a labor of love for you and that's fantastic. But obviously, if you can make money, that creates ways that you can reinvest that money to improve it, to expand in more platforms, etc. What are some of the ways you've been thinking about that, like monetization and what it would look like? Yeah, so um, you know, I was, I was challenged by a podcast I listened to by a guy named Matt Williams, who I believe you've, you've interviewed with before, um, his How to Build a Tent podcast. And his challenge is trying to get 250 of his listeners to build businesses that generate $250 of revenue per month, which, you know, it's a small number, but this is all about side hustles. So, um, you know, I've been thinking about whether I should take on that challenge and try to kind of meet that threshold for, for versus for life. And it's, it's still something that I'm kind of working through and thinking through, but I think it's a really a really good challenge and it's an interesting idea. Um, you know, but both from the perspective of just, you know, if it's generating revenue, then I can reinvest that in growing it, getting it to more people, making it better quality and just generally helping with the, the, the vision for the app of, um, you know, making verse memory just, you know, easier and, and more accessible to, to more people. So, so from that perspective, I think it'd be a, a useful thing to do if it'll help with that. But what are the approaches that you're exploring? Because like obviously sure. there's in-app purchases. Yes. Uh, what else? There's advertising. There's Patreon. Uh, maybe corporate sponsorships. I don't know. I'm, I'm <laughs> throwing stuff out there. I'm just yeah, sponsored uh, by the navigators. <laughs> yeah, corporate sponsorships is not something I've thought about, but that's yeah, that that's one option. Advertising, I have no interest in. Like yeah. I, I, you know, I, I, one of my kind of design tenets for the app is that I don't want anything to get in your way you know, for, for doing the memorization. So 
I think with, with some of the verse packs that I've put in there, um, you know, I've put a link to more resources. Like I, for example, I have a prayer pack, which, which you and uh, Natasha helped me come up with the content for that. So I have a link to ceaseless prayer from within my app, mm -hmm. um, for example, but you know, that's, it's at the bottom, it's in the resources section. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I don't want anything to distract the user from memorizing verses. And that's, um, you know, that's where I, I make the focus on the verses themselves. So no, no advertising, not really interested in, in that. So that, that leaves in-app purchases. Mm -hmm. So things like making additional Bible translations available, although I expect most of that would just cover the costs to, yeah. to pay those, uh, those rights holders. And, and this would require a lot of additional development work, but I'd love to be able to make it possible for users to memorize any verse. Like right now it's, it's um, you know, the, the topical memory system and then a couple of additional oh. packs. But uh, I, in my app, I don't have any way to create your own pack, for okay. example. Pack creation. Um, so if, if it made money, then I could pay more for the servers and, and the... The development um, probably, right? Yeah, and it, yeah. It, well, not really servers anymore, but for the cloud-hosted oh. resources the infrastructure. to, yeah, the, the infrastructure to, um, you know, make make additional verses available. So yeah, those are those are two options, and I think Patreon is a really interesting one. You know, I've seen a lot of things more on the content side of things. I guess I haven't really seen it with apps. I'm honestly not sure on the iOS side how you would tie access to bonus features to a Patreon account. Mm. That seems like that could be. A little difficult just from the perspective that you can't really uh, market that within your app um, because mm -hmm. Apple would crack down on you if you're not giving them the 30%. Because you have to do the subscription um, through Apple. Yeah. If it's inside your app. Although, I mean, you could, yeah, you could just, if you're doing the in-app purchasing, you could make a subscription available, which from a UX perspective, if you can use Apple Pay and just give them your mm, thumbprint, if you're willing easy. to give Apple their cut, that's probably actually an easier way to acquire the user. Mm -hmm. You just have to be willing to give up that percentage of the mm -hmm. revenue. Yeah, it's something I've thought about. I haven't, haven't gotten very far with exploring it, but I think that would be an interesting approach too. Yeah. Because like even for us, like we've been trying to figure out how do we actually raise money for these kinds of endeavors? Because they deliver value, but they're not. We're not able to grow them without additional capital. Yeah. And uh, like so, for example, like this Theotech podcast, I've shared like our Patreon some, but we haven't really intentionally tried to promote that. Mm -hmm. And then I started off trying to say, oh, we're creating a podcast, and you can support it by being a Patreon person. And, but I think that I had an idea. It's like, and I don't know if it's going to work. Which is, what if it could be more of you're supporting like Theotech's work in creating all these things. So it's the podcast, it's like Ceases Prayer app, it's all these things like that, and that's what that's what really you're supporting by being a pay, uh, Patreon person. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it, I wonder if people would also like that because it would free us up to basically be investing that money in a lot of different kinds of things that are still trying to deliver value for free to uh, the end consumer, basically. Yeah. It's a thought. Yeah, the, the Patreon thing is interesting. Like... I think most of my experience there has been as as a user and a supporter of things. And you know, for me, part of it has been open source. So I've supported some people that do open source software development because, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I appreciate them or I appreciate the software that they're building and yeah. want to give them financial incentive to keep doing it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I've used it for. Uh, you know, a couple of podcasts, um, you know, and a couple of other kind of experiments that people have run. Um, so th those are my big, biggest uses as, as a consumer. And I think the things that seem to work well are, like, I will fund things that I believe in what the people are doing, right? Mm. Um, and actually, a couple of the things have been, like, the, the Babylon, no, not the Babylon B, they've got the subscription through their own website, but 
Um, you know, there's a guy named Adam Ford who, you know, he does some comics, he does some uh, Christian news website, for example, you know, and he, he raises some money through Patreon. So mm. there's, there's some things like that where you'll get people that want to fund you because they believe in what you're doing and they believe in, in what your mission is. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the things that, that seem to work well are you get some sort of bonus content, like as a subscriber. Yeah. Um, sometimes they do the, you know, the Kickstarter sort of thing where there's different levels. So you get, you get more perks, but the Kickstarter um, is different than Patreon because it's a, it's like a, yeah, it's a, it's a one-time thing. Right? right. And then the Patreon's ongoing right or per creation or something like that. Right. Yeah. So you need more buy-in for, for Patreon than Kickstarter. Mm. I mean, Kickstarter, you know, like at least my perspective with Kickstarter is I will, I will fund something if I'm pretty confident, I'm going to get what I want out of it, which is usually yeah. like, okay, somebody's making a CD and I trust them to actually record the cd and ship it to Uh, me uh so i tend to fund things that are like pretty much guaranteed to ship out with that (laughs) um but it's but it's a lower commitment too you you know you've already got your kickstarter account um you you click the button for which tier and then at some point you get whatever the thing is like with patreon like that's coming out of your your checking account every month Mm -hmm. um so you've either got to care a lot more or you know, really value what it is that you're getting out of it. Mm-hmm. And I, I think um, I think it also helps like, in those types of things. Uh, you know, part of what people want to do is connect with what you're doing too. Mm. So, so there, there seems to be an aspect of like, are you communicating with your backers? Are you telling them, hey, this is what I'm doing? You know, do they remember that you're there? Do do they do they have an emotional connection with what you're doing or with the product that you're giving them, the service that you're giving them. Um, and in some ways, I think Patreon works better with a services type of model because, or, you know, just recurring content yes, recurring over and content. over again. Yeah. Um, yeah, it doesn't make sense for a product. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you're not going to ship something physical every month usually. Yeah. Uh, so it hasn't worked as well for software as a service, for example, or like a subscription service for software. Yeah, I don't think it would work for that. I haven't seen anybody try that on. So it wouldn't be like people would say, I support Versus for Life, so I'm going to give like, you know, $3 a month on Patreon or something like that. Yeah, I'm I'm not sure. I've I've seen, um, one thing I've seen with Patreon, and and this ties in back, you know, more to the podcast side of things is uh, there's an app called Crowdcast. And so if you as a podcast creator want to give your Patreon subscribers access to some, um, well, actually their biggest uh, thing is is live content. Mm-hmm. And so Crowdcast, so you can stream your, your video, uh, you can turn on commenting, so you can get your listeners like commenting, asking questions, you can do polls, you can have some interactive element. And they, they tie it in so that if you plug in your Patreon subscribers, they can get exclusive access to the live feed, for example. Okay. Um, so that's one thing I, I have seen where, you know, again, you have to be doing a regular production of, of these episodes yeah. or these, you know, the podcast. But um, so there, there are ways to tie that together. That's pretty interesting. I just, you know, as you described it, though, I felt like, does this work for like introverts? <laughs> like people who don't <laughs> like to like share everything about their life on a, on a show or, you know, on a, on a regular basis. I have a hard time even like writing an email. So one of my goals for the new year is actually to write an email finally to the Theotech community mailing list, which I have not emailed in like three, two or three years. Uh, and it's like, I think there's some sort of social anxiety there where it's like, I don't know what to say. I feel like it needs to be profound and I'm just going to procrastinate and not do it. I'm going to do it this year, God willing. But I can't imagine having to do it on a tempo of like, 
every week I'm going to give an update to my supporters. Yeah, you should uh, get that done in the next week. <laughs> I challenge you. <laughs> um, no, I, I understand what you're saying. I, yeah, it's, it's interesting. So when I was in high school, I did not like raising my hand. I did not like presenting or going to the front of the class. Um, you know, in the nearly nine years that I was at Amazon, somehow I developed this enjoyment for speaking at their internal, uh, you know, web development conference mm-hmm. that, that they do, um, you know, w- one or more times a year. Mm-hmm. And for me, there, there were a few things that helped. One is knowing that, like, whenever I spoke, I made sure to only agree to present about topics that I knew well. Mm. Um, so I had confidence in my topic. I had confidence in my knowledge of whatever it was that I was talking about. And, I mean, that, that made it easy for me. You know, in some senses, it still took a lot of prep work. Like, especially for presentations, you've just got to rehearse mm. over and over and over again and alter your content and figure out your story so that it actually flows well and, you know, works well both, both visually and, and uh, audibly. I'm sure you have a lot of experience with watching presentations or the, the spiffio stuff that you do too. Mm-hmm. Watching um, and delivering presentations too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, for, for me, just the, the confidence in the, in the topic helped a lot. And, um, you know, the other thing was just realizing that I probably care more about what I'm talking about than anybody listening to me. Oh. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, I don't know. There's some perspective things you can you can do there, but... I ha- I, so I have one homework... Well, not homework assignment, but, like, uh, I'm working with a coach right now. Yeah. And the assignment was, like, for this letter that I've been procrastinating on. Just write it to me. Like, write it as if I was writing to myself. Because I noticed that my filter goes off and it just can produce tons of writing. Mm. It's really, like, this... Kind of like with code, where... If you get if you over optimize too soon too early you end up getting stuck and you don't get anywhere right. sometimes you got to do a bad first draft and then you can edit if you wish or you can just ship it and you know like and so that was her idea and I'm like okay I'm gonna try that because I think that it does if I stop worrying about what other people think and I just kind of write it as if I was writing to myself like pretty frankly I could write a ton because I already write like a lot anyway in like a journal kind of thing I just never want to show anybody and so I'm gonna try that technique and maybe I can invite people to help give feedback before I actually ship it. But I'm, I'm going to try to lean into less, being less of a perfectionist and just shipping this year. We'll see. God willing. And, and getting a few people that you trust well, you know, one, I mean, it could just be one person too. Somebody that you trust mm-hmm. that you're willing to share those early drafts with. Mm-hmm. You know, my, my wife, for fun, she edits one of her friend's blog posts. Um, just, nice. just, you know, for, for grammar, punctuation, some mm-hmm. of those types of things. So, like, you, you can find people who are willing to do that. Uh, and, and that can make a difference, too. I mean, maybe, maybe, that, would, huge maybe that would help. Because then you're not worrying about editing yourself. You're focused on the content and someone else can help to edit yeah. after the fact. Yeah. And edit or just content. know that you're going to take a couple of rounds at it. Yeah, um, that's, that's one of those, uh, you know, I mean, there's a whole profession called copywriting, too. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, like when you look at these awesome websites with all their perfectly edited content, everything's visually pleasing. Well, it's because they've got visual designers, they've got product <laughs> people thinking about how things should look. You know, if, if the text content's really good, they might have a copywriter writing that content As to make job. it catchy, memorable, uh-huh. figuring out how to tell this story. You know, I mean, especially like you look at the big brand websites, like they've definitely got those kind of people. You know, you look at pages for some of the big products, even, you know, on, on any e-commerce website, really. Mm-hmm. 
there are a lot of people thinking about how to make the brand look that good mm -hmm. on on the, the you know either their own websites or on any place that they're selling, um, you know Nike, Bose, whoever. And so I guess that's part of one of the things that's really challenging about being an entrepreneur is you end up filling a lot of those roles yourself, Yeah. which, you know, keep learning, be curious, try out lots of different things and be okay with failure. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, um, failure is, is really hard to go through, but that's one of the best ways to learn is from the experiments that don't work. Mm-hmm. And being able to move on past that experiment and not have to cling to it and be like, yeah. no, it must work. Yeah. That's, one, that's really hard for me. As a perfectionist, like, that's been the hard, maybe one of the hardest parts of my entrepreneurial journey is just having to accept that I'm going to suck at a lot of things and still have to do them and ship them. I had a particular project that I worked on. You know, it wasn't full time for this time period, but over the course of four or five months, one of the main experiments I worked on was this one particular thing, which I won't get into the details, but when you got to the end of it, we ran the experiments and it failed. And I just spent like five months of my time wow. working on this. Uh -huh. And that's really sad. <laughs> and like in this case, it wasn't anything that I did wrong. Like I, I wish I had, you know, coded faster and gotten some things done sooner so we could have learned faster. And that, mm -hmm. that's one of the things in software engineering you really try to optimize for is speed of, ex of experimentation just mm -hmm. so you can get those learning sooner. But man, that's, that's really hard. Kind of hurts, huh? Yeah. Got to let go of your baby that you work on for five months. It does. That's tough. So let's... Yeah. That's where you really appreciate the wins when you get them too. As you mm. see those, it's like, okay, you know, I learned some things, like my team learned some things, and we did something better later that mm. was, you know, a, a really good result. Yeah. So having a portfolio of experiments, even when you're in a small company, kind of helps because it lets you get both failures and learn as well as get some successes in there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's harder when you're small in some ways because depending on how much of your time it takes, it can be more costly from that perspective. Absolutely. So you've got to figure out ways to do that without sucking up too much mm -hmm. of your your time from from the important things you're trying to do. But um, but even with the important things, it could be a very important experiment, and you yeah. don't know the outcome until you actually try. Yeah, and you could actually do the experiment and it failed, and you wasted. You felt like you wasted it, but you had to do it to learn. Right. So it is more, far more of a gamble. I think the hard part about being like an entrepreneur in a small situation is that at least in a bigger company, one, you're not worried about your survival as much. And then two, you might have positive feedback loops from other things that are going well. And mm -hmm. sometimes in a small company, because that was all that you did, you feel like it failed and like nothing else went well. Yeah. I have nothing else to say like, okay, it was okay. We have this other thing. And that is what like in the early days, especially makes it so hard to stay motivated because the positive feedback loops are way rare compared to the negative ones in the early stages. Thanks to Calvin for joining us. If you want to grow in scripture memory, be sure to check out Verses for Life at verses.life. And I want to thank our patrons for making today's episode possible. If you enjoy our podcast and would like to support creating content about the theology of technology and get bi-weekly updates about what's happening at Theotech, find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Theotech. Thank you, and until next time.